Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change V podcast today with Corbin Petro. Hi, Corbin. How's it going? Great. Uh, thanks for having me, Jonathan. Good to be here. Yes. Excited for this uh, episode. Excited for this conversation. Um, we always start the same way in the sense that we start off with a, with an icebreaker question, you know, to make things uh, go easy, go smoothly. And uh, that is obviously that we would like to know who's it that we're talking to. So, you know, kind of first question for today will be, you know, and take take time for that. Um, you know, it's it's also, I would say, the easiest question. Uh, it's a really kind of, you know, guide us through of like, you know, your professional background and where are you coming from? Uh, mm-hmm. What's kind of your story um, and how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, well, thanks. Um, thanks for the, the question. Um, so as, as I alluded to in our pre-conversation, I grew up um, in the Midwest, in Ohio, um, here in the United States, um, and really through my upbringing was taught to care about service, um, was exposed through exploring across the state through my father's work, working with um, people of all different backgrounds, all different economic backgrounds and so was really drawn to healthcare as a as a mechanism to to give back and to to try to understand where the the inequities are within within healthcare which I often saw were driven by a person's economic background. So I've spent my whole my whole career in in healthcare um, really focused on a couple key themes um, designing new ways of uh, paying for healthcare so new reimbursement models designing new ways of delivering care, so different modalities and different mechanisms to deliver care, and then um, really trying to serve the most vulnerable and underserved populations. And then through through those three, really working with technology and data. So um, before founding Eleanor Health, um, which is my current company, um, spent some time um, as chief operating officer of Medicaid in Massachusetts. Medicaid is um, care for the, the lowest income populations uh, supported by the government, um, spent some time as CEO of a payer provider joint venture. So where health plans and hospitals work together, we created a, a new asset. And then through that work really surfaced the need for um, more evidence-based care, really focused on the whole person for individuals and populations who are affected by substance use disorder, addiction, and mental health needs, which brought me to founding Eleanor Health. Interesting. So let, let's, um, you know, guide me through your journey into entrepreneurship, because, you know, uh, that's something that is completely different than, you know, working in an organization, even if it's a, especially if it's a large organization, because, you know, it's a, it's a completely different level of discomfort, I would argue. Um, so, uh, you know, was, was it, was it or did it ever occur to you that, you know, that is like an option like to, you know, to start a company, um, you know, to 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 become a founder? And, and um, you know, I'm, I'm just curious on how how you, you know, how was your move basically from already, you know, being up in an executive position, kind of like at a larger organization as well to becoming a founder? Because I some from what I experience or from what I observe, that's you know not that common i would say it's because because there's already that you know large level of comfort that a person has acquired through throughout through life right through through throughout um their professional career that that it's often you know a jump that most people don't take so i'm curious about your journey 
Yeah, I think I think of it a little differently. So I think there are types of people who are innovators and who are builders. Um, and so I've always been an innovator and a, and a builder. And so every environment I've been in, I've created something new. Um, I've, you know, created a strive for for changes, for setting new initiatives. And so, of course, doing that within um, a larger environment is is very different. You know, they call it the entrepreneur, right? Somebody who does something within a larger organization. Um, but that's always been my mindset is there's always better ways of doing things. There's always new um, innovations that, you know, a large organization can can be very impactful in helping to fund and create and create legitimacy around some of those innovations. So I think, you know, there are a lot of innovators who sit within large organizations and they can be incredibly impactful. And so there are different ways to have impact besides, you know, pure sort of founder entrepreneurship. Um, you can do that within, within large companies as well. Um, and I think healthcare is really interesting and unique because we've seen recently a lot of outsiders come into healthcare and try to create something new and discover that healthcare is not like other parts of, um, you know, the innovation economy or technology. There isn't sort of a hyperscale often. And I think what's fascinating about healthcare is in, in my, you know, 20 years prior to founding Eleanor in, in the healthcare space, I learned a lot around the various different stakeholders within healthcare, the, the payers and the insurers, how they pay for things, the consumers, how they, how they pick their healthcare interventions, how the providers are engaged in those decisions, how pharmaceutical and medical device and the various different silos within healthcare work together. And I think that knowledge and that institutional understanding of how the different pieces play together did a couple of things. One, it showed me, God, there has to be a better way um, on so many different parts of healthcare. And if somebody with my knowledge, my you know, track record of spending time in these various different segments of healthcare isn't doing it, who is and who's going to be successful. And so that's what really then gave me the, the, the confidence to say, okay, I understand how health insurance works. I understand how consumers work. I understand how providers are part of that. How do you weave them all together to really create change and use technology and data to do that in a place where you really need that change to, to happen? And that's what sort of led me to both founding my last, my last company, which was a joint venture. So I had to work together to found it with a health plan and um, hospital systems. And then my current, which is a VC-backed healthcare company, Eleanor Health, um, really have that. And it's the background and it's the experience that I have that really has given us the, you know, the traction because we're, we're doing things very differently in the space. I think healthcare is really hard to come in cold as an entrepreneur, if I'm really honest. Hmm. That's a, that's a very, yeah, very interesting uh, statement. Um, so let's, let's talk about, um, you know, let, let's talk about uh, your, your current venture. So, which, which, as you said, is, is uh, you know, VC backed. Um, so that transition period, I, I think it's, what is very interesting is always like a transition period from, you know, um, what a person did before a venture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that that is a very, that's a very profound moment. <laughs> and uh, so I, I like to go into these moments. Um, so, you know, guide me through, you know, that transition period before, like, you know, finding your co-founder, that moment of like, actually like, okay, so I'm actually going to start a company, you know, all these things that led up 
to you know you actually raising first funding etc yeah um so it was at my i was at my last organization um benavera health which was a payer provider joint venture and what we did in that work was we would um we would use data to surface populations and individuals who could use a little bit more help um and we'd outreach and engage and we'd go out into their homes and we'd support them both clinically so provide them clinical interventions as well as non-clinically so support them with you know economic social determinant other wrap supports that ultimately led them to having better better health and it was really in that work that i that i realized that these people often had mental health and substance use disorder issues that hadn't been surfaced by our data and our data infrastructure because so much of that goes undiagnosed so much of that is sort of hidden under the surface but it was those drivers that were really creating the, the high cost and the high utilization of the system for other healthcare needs that these populations had. And that really led me to wanting to figure out how do you, how do you solve for these populations and these people who have addiction issues? So, you know, I would, we, we went into, here's an example. We went into a patient's home and um, this is a person who was um, diabetic, um, COPD, um, really poorly managed, going into the emergency room on a pretty regular basis for, you know, diabetic shock, um, poorly managed diabetes. And we went in and really surfaced that it was not somebody who just didn't, couldn't figure out how to manage their diabetes. They had, you know, a substance use disorder and that substance use disorder poorly, you know, poorly managed um, was, was leading to that individual having you know, diabetic shock and, and issues with their other physical, physical needs. And so it was really that aha moment of why aren't we addressing what is really the root cause of this person's challenges that led me to want to focus on this area of a substance use disorder and mental health. And then, uh, you know, I partnered, I partnered with a VC pretty early on to incubate, um, incubate the, the concept and work to find my co-founder, um, Dr. Nzinga Harrison. So I come with sort of, you know, business and go to market um, and that understanding of the ecosystem and then hired a clinical, you know, the best clinical expert um, in addiction and mental health to really design our clinical model because we knew we want to do what's best for the patients. We want to build an evidence-based clinical model that will give superior outcomes. And then we wanna get insurance and others to pay based on our outcomes. We only wanna get paid if we get the outcomes that we say that we're gonna achieve with, with our patients. And so that's that's sort of how we let, you know, went into those, those moments. So it was, it was an aha moment at my last organization. And then it was a, you know, confidence in getting some buy-in from, from some investors um, that sort of had me take that, that leap. Interesting, yeah. So, um... It's it's good that you mentioned um you know that the the incubation phase. So what what I find uh, what I find also very interesting and, and and that you know connects to what you said prior with you know your expertise in 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 healthcare, like knowing okay you know these how individual how the individual players are forming up the system, how compensation works, you know how the financials work in in in, in that domain because that's also a very you know let's say kind of critical uh you know factor as well because in the end you know things need to be paid for etc and i think that's also oftentimes what i observe is you know the 
the the fit between you know okay we have an idea and you know there's like it the thing also needs to you know make economically somehow sense right and so let's talk about what you said like okay so we only want to get paid when you know when 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 we are actually helping people right when our mm -hmm. clinical um model uh, works so you know let's talk about that period and you know in you and in, in that incubation period right of fitting okay so i've observed a problem right or uh we we have something and, and we want to build build a solution for that right there's there's a technology component which is more or less a tool etc put it putting that all together and then like also wrapping a business model around that you know yeah. let, let's talk about that and maybe go into a, li a little bit of the details um for for the venture yeah, so as, as we were designing what this looked like, um, obviously the, the care model um, included all the different evidence-based components that we know would lead to good patient outcomes. And it's based a lot on the evidence and the, the, um, the literature in right. this space. And then my co-founder's personal experience, obviously delivering care. And then as we designed the payment model, that was based on a lot of my experience designing unique payment models in this space. And so it's, fo it's focused on, you know, if, if we're managing this population or if we're delivering care, what are the key metrics that we want to achieve for this population? And how, how can we make sure that our reimbursement is oriented around that? Because what we found in the care model is that a huge portion of the care and the technology and the data is just not paid for in our system. Our system pays for things that don't always yield positive uh, patient outcomes. They focus on things that you can measure, um, like like widgets, right? So mm -hmm. services, and so because our system pays for, you know, reimburses really well for urine drug screens. Um, that's that's a really one that's overused in our space. Um, it's it's overused because health insurers pay for it, and so it's it's a way for clinicians to make money, um, but it's not at all doesn't at all lead to positive outcomes. So we, we put together that model, but in healthcare, to get a payer to, to sign up for a model um, that's, that's unique, you usually have to show them that it's been successful. So when we launched the company and started actually providing our clinical services and building our technology to support it, we did it at, at you know, losing money with each, with each patient, really focused on building out the care model, building out and showing and quantifying in great detail the impact that we were having on the population so that then we could go and sell that to payers. And so that's another, I think, nuance in healthcare is being able, you know, it takes 12, 24 months to prove out that something is effective and efficient for, for patient populations. And so we had to, that's what we did with our first tranche of capital was really standing up and proving out that, that part of product market fit, right? Where you have a fit both for the patients and the outcomes are so strong that it will be compelling to a payer mm -hmm. to, to buy into that type of financial model. Okay. And so uh, were you um, was it enough for, for convincing the first payers um, to, you know, to show your own data or did, or was it like, okay, so we got to run some sort of, some sort of clinical trial or something like that? Like, um, you know, what, how was, how was that for you guys? No, it was, I mean, most of them, I think it was part, you know, the reputation of the team that we, that we mm -hmm. built and knowing that right. we were doing things in the right way. Um, and then the, the, you know, the financial model and how we were orienting it around these, 
you know, these outcomes that we had proven. So we said, here are the outcomes that we, that we have proven and let's put it, let's put it in and do a partnership. We believe in them so much that you don't have to pay us unless we achieve them. So it's part, look what we've, look what we've done through this model, then pay us in this way. And we'll, we only get the, the financial reward or share that financial outcome with you. If we, if we achieve in, in, in hitting those outcomes. So, you know, when I think about this, you know, it's moved to value-based care, you know, it's really important to be able to prove um, that you've been able to, to really have impact on, on patient populations. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the, the, the actual product building and, you know, the technology side of it, because I think what's uh, as well, what's, what's difficult is to combine these two things. So to combine the health domain, to combine the health expertise and then, you know, take the technology component to it, um, you know, you know, blending these two together is, 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 is quite a challenge. Uh, let, let's talk about your, um, you know, your journey in building product, let's say, you know, um, of, of, of taking, okay, so we have a, we have a, you know, clinical expert, we, you know, we have, we have knowledge that we're taking from there and we combine that with technology in order to build a product, you know, how, how was that journey for you guys? And, you know, um, how 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 does the actual end product towards the you know the patient look like? Yeah, I mean, I think um, healthcare at the end of the day, I think needs to be multimodal, meaning that it's part technology, it's part human, it's you know data driven, and so we we come at technology as an enabler. Um, we come at technology as a part of the care journey. Um, we come at technology as, you know, particularly data can be a huge um, lift in understanding our, our, the patients that we're serving, what their preferences are, what interventions would be most valuable to different segments of the population. And so that's how we built our technology. First and foremost, we built the technology to support our clinicians. So make their life easy, um, make um, the work that they do aligned with our care model. So our technology supports and directs our providers to deliver a care model. So I think that's really important to make sure that, that the care that we're delivering, which is really the product, is consistent. So build our technology to support our clinicians in delivering a consistent evidence-based care model. The second piece that we built was our data infrastructure. So making sure that we're collecting every piece of every intervention and understanding the outcomes that we're achieving. So there's, you know, we have ingested um, over a hundred million claims um, from our payer partners. We've, um, we've obviously enriched that data with our own data that we, uh, that we collect from our patient population so that we really understand that full picture of our population and the impact that we're having. Um, and then we use that, that data infrastructure to inform um, how we deliver care to each different segment of the population and what their needs are based on their clinical um, profiles, as well as their sociodemographic profiles, as well as other sort of behavior-based segmentation that we do. So we built that data infrastructure. And then the third piece that we're still continuing to build out um, is our patient experience. So our, you know, our patient populations have, you know, an app, um, a web app, um, different ways to engage with us to make sure that they're able to work with our teams in a, in a, um, you know, asynchronous way through a, a synchronous way through, you know, video and other pieces. And our technology, our patient facing technology is something that 
supports them throughout their, their journey. So somebody, you know, a patient can come to us just through the technology. A patient can come to us by walking through our door. We have physical sites, um, physical clinics. A patient can come to us through a referral from somebody else. So there are all these doors that a patient can come to us. And I, you know, my view is that in healthcare, you have to have, there isn't one track, especially if you're doing what we're doing, which is really caring for the whole person. It has to be a very comprehensive and multimodal approach. Very interesting. Yeah. So I, 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 I especially that physical component, I guess, you know, is, is oftentimes overlooked at, or, you know, especially in the, in the tech world, you know, that's, that's something that is oftentimes neglected or not even looked at. Right. But it's especially in healthcare, it's such an important, such an important um, aspect. And I think that hybrid, that hybrid come, uh, so that hybrid approach is actually where, you know, you get that round picture of a patient, right. And, and are really able to in depth, you know, collect all the relevant data that, that, that you, that you want in order to have this really kind of round picture. So if you, if you, if you say, um, you know, um, you talked about the data infrastructure, um, how, what, what is, what is the data, let's say in the, in, from, on the digital side, what, what is the data that you are collecting, uh, from a patient on, 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 on that front? Yeah. So, um, so we, so we, we get claims data, we enrich that claims data with third-party, um, data. So we do get sort of demographic and commercial, um, data through third-party sources. And then when we engage with, with a patient, we collect everything from their preferences, um, um, any, any interaction, we, we, we track that with them, how they use our app, how they use our technology. And then on a regular basis, we, um, we track, um, our patient success, uh, or movement on an, a bunch of psychometrically validated scales and screeners. So there are, you know, psychometrically validated screeners in our space, like the PHQ-9, the GAD-7, Recovery Capital, there are a number of these different data elements that show how somebody is improving, how their anxiety is improving, how their depression is improving, how their substance craving is improving, how their financial stability is improving, how their access to housing is improving. So we track all of that. Um, and then we link it up, obviously, with the claims to really understand the impact that we're having cohort by cohort. Interesting. So um, can, can we talk a little bit more in depth about the claims data? So, um, you know, what, what makes that component up? So, um, so cl claims are essentially billing, billing information. Um, so when we work with payers, so we partner with payers um, around our, our financial structure. And when we work with them, they, they essentially assign us patient populations to manage. And as part of that, we, we get a, um, a feed from them mm -hmm. that shows what they've seen from their lens, which is basically what billable information have they seen from the patient populations that they're assigning to us. That includes both sort of behaviors that, and utilization that our, our patients have had with the healthcare system, mm -hmm. anything that's available as well as anything diagnosed. So we understand, okay, our, you know, our patient populations cost this much. Our patient populations go to the ED and the inpatient this much. They have these diagnosis codes. They, um, you know, we, we understand that from the claims information that we get. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, I, th those are basically... You know that that is a lot of information you guys are collecting. So, um, so what what's kind of like, what what's the successes you you've seen with that, and like how how big a how how big of a you know how big of an opportunity is this? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what we what we know about people with a substance use disorder, people who are struggling with mental, it's a huge, it's a big portion of the population. Um, so, you know, depending on what statistic you use, it's 20 to 40 million Americans have um, a substance use disorder. The vast majority are not seeking treatment. Um, and the vast majority are very complicated and expensive. So, you know, 80% of people with a substance use disorder have another mental health condition. 70% have another physical comorbidity um, and upwards of 90% are not engaging with a primary care physician. And so they're really using the healthcare system in exactly the ways we don't want people to be there. You're going to the emergency room, you know, like that's yeah. not fun for anyone. They're going and they're sitting in hospitals. Um, they're trying to find the right care, but they don't have that. So when we engage somebody with us, um, you know, we see two thirds of people have a statistically significant improvement in their um, anxiety and their depression and their substance craving. Um, we see really significant reductions in those emergency room visits, 40 to 80%, depending on the, the time period. And that's really just showing, you know, increased satisfaction, you know, something like 99% of our patients say that they have had a, a meaningful experience with us. So mm -hmm. there's just positive impact that then also has a positive impact from a cost perspective, which is, which is obviously important to our, to our payer clients. So if we talk about the root cause um, uh, of, of, let's say, substance uh, disorder, right? Um, is that something that you guys are also able to kind of, you know, tackle ultimately or in, in, the, long, in the long run? Because like well, also, and as a maybe follow-up question to that as well, is like, do you see certain trends in, 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 in that regard? So to substance disorder, like, from that root cause or like, you know, maybe in, in a specific category or something that is, you know, growing at a faster pace than, for example, something else. Yeah. So, I mean, I think hundred percent, what we, what we do is we try to take care of the whole person. Um, and so people with a substance use disorder are complex. They do have multiple issues that they're, that they are looking to tackle. And we, we, we address those head on in our, in our care model. So we, we address and we we treat the you know the other mental health conditions that that our patients. So eighty percent of people who have a substance use disorder have anxiety, depression, trauma. We treat that within our care model, and we find that treating that is really critical to treating the substance use disorder. If you're just you know giving somebody medication, for example, you're just putting a band aid on the problem. You have to treat the underlying conditions. We often find that when we treat those any of the physical health comorbidities, so diabetes, COPD, those, those um, physical comorbidities typically fall under control when you, when you manage the mental health conditions, the substance use disorder. So we do all that within our model. And it's really important in this population to do that because we, we do it under one, one roof, essentially, or one coordinated entity. And that's where, we're, that's where we often drive a lot of the, the impact that we're having. And then, of course, we also address the so social drivers. And so those can be economic, you know, a person may need support with housing, um, food insecurity, but it's also really important for anyone, but particularly for this population is creating meaning and purpose in people's lives. And so we help people find an organization to volunteer at. We help people create, you know, how do you, um, how do you socialize in a sober environment if you haven't done that before um, and give people tools you know, how do you find a job, you know, if you haven't had one? Um, and so creating those opportunities and mechanisms to create that meaning and purpose in people's lives is really an important part of 
giving people the tools that they need to be successful in their recovery. Right. And um, so uh, again, to my, to my follow-up question, that is like, do you guys see like in, in the data and then like, you know, maybe, and also related to the claims data that you guys get, is there like, um, you know, a trend in, in, in the sense of like what categories are, are, you know, m more, you know, present or kind of like growing at a faster pace in the sense of like a certain, you know, substance disorder. And maybe, at, you know, that's a good point for you to define like what, what, you know, what, what, what is falling under substance disorder and, in, 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 you know, in, in, in this, in this case. Yeah. So I mean, I think what you always see is a high prevalence of the substances that are readily available. So mm -hmm. al alcohol and tobacco use, um, those are always going to be, um, because they're, socially acceptable, they're easy to access, and people can, can you know, abuse them and, and, you know, establish a substance use disorder through that. Um, certainly, we've seen opioid use disorder um, surge. Most people who we treat with opioid use disorder have another substance, you know, alcohol, and others that are part of their, their story. Um, we see meth um, in, in different pockets. Um, those That's very regionalized. So we see meth and cocaine and stimulants um, surge in different parts of the country. But again, most people have our polysubstance, meaning they have multiple substances. So, um, you know, we, we, we see all of that and all of them are impactful in different ways. So, you know, I heard a clinician say the other day that, you know, uh, opioids kill you quickly and, and alcohol kills you slowly. And mm -hmm. so it's sort of, how do you, you know, how do you make sure that you're addressing all of them? Because so many people have multiple substance use disorder challenges. Um, and then on the mental health side, certainly with COVID, we saw um, spikes in anxiety, in depression, isolation, and those underlying mental health conditions are often a precursor to somebody then struggling with, with substance use disorder as, you know, as a, essentially a me mechanism to cope with those mental health conditions. So we saw a big spike in anxiety um, throughout COVID, it's, you know, that has gone down a little bit more, but at least I think one of the silver linings of, of the, the pandemic has been people being comfortable acknowledging um, and starting to surface their, their mental health needs around anxiety, anxiety and depression, which again are often the, the underlying sort of mental health conditions. So I think there's been a lot more, um, acknowledgement of those of those needs across the country and the world yeah interesting so um another question that i had on my mind is like um do you guys um so anxiety and depression are like those two words have been and, and you you mentioned it right especially with COVID, and then you know looking as well so from my lens on the on the venture space right as well those are like two things you know or two words to you know or conditions that are thrown around a lot and there's a lot of ventures that are tr tackling or kind of covering that you know from different perspectives or you know maybe from the same perspective so um the, the, the and and in your case with substance disorder right is there like um is for for substance disorder is is that maybe is there a different component of like at, at a certain point to be able to identify the, the the you know the population or those people with you know certain depending on the different data points that your organization potentially could have right to intervene before it actually happens, you know, before it gets to the point of substance disorder, because like anxiety. So 
where I'm coming from is basically like anxiety and depression, you know, is, is something that, you know, a lot of people are experiencing, right? But not everyone that is experiencing these things is ending up in substance disorder, right? So okay. that's, that's where I'm basically coming from. I mean, there, there are, there are predictive models. There, there are some clinicians, you know, there's a famous clinician, his name is um, Dr. Gabor Mate, mm -hmm. who believes that the, the, you know, the precursor to any substance use disorder and addiction is trauma. Um, and so trauma is another, um, you know, another, you know, mental health trigger um, that people who have experienced trauma often, um, you know, turn to, to substances and, and end up having a substance use disorder as a, as a mechanism to cope. And so there, there are predictive models on a number of different factors that sort of can, can give you a signal um, that somebody has a higher propensity or a higher um, probability of, um, you know, merging as somebody with a substance use disorder. Trauma is one. Mm -hmm. um, somebody who, um, you know, somebody who you, you, can, you can actually see in the data, somebody who is, you know, been, been prescribed and has been on high dose, long duration opioids. Mm -hmm. um, that often is a precursor to the diagnosis of a substance use disorder. It's showing that somebody has that. Um, you know, there's there's evidence to show that that um, individuals with ADHD have a higher um, propensity and prevalence of um, of having a substance use disorder. So there are these sort of um, signals in the in the data before somebody is actually diagnosed with with a substance use disorder. Um, we've done some work around that, particularly when we partner with payers. Like, do we do you want us to start trying to work with this population? Most payers really want you to focus on the ones that are, there's so much need in those that are already really struggling um, and that are trying to find that care in the system. Um, but there, there, there should be more focus on that because there, there, are, there are signals in the data, both in the clinical evidentiary data, but also in some of the behavior-based data that, that we see on the claim side. Interesting. Um, what I'm also curious about is have you, you know, have you opened up your, you know, in, in the course of, of, of developing your, 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 your product and your, your also your digital, um, you know, you did the digital component, your platform, um, have you opened up to, um, you know, other, other partners like third-party, you know, technology companies, maybe, you know, in order to partner up on, I don't know, some sort of feature or, you know, not to develop everything yourself, et cetera. Oh yeah, I mean we do we do a lot of um, we we think about every piece of technology as a build by partner question. Mm -hmm. um, we have built the stuff that we have felt is really unique to us, but you know we right. use a third party EMR, um, we use third party um, you know analytics infrastructures. We mm -hmm. use a lot of different, and then we're creating um, you know a partner market marketplace because oh, really. Yeah, okay. so our mem our members have a lot of needs. So, for example, they might have a need for you know a financial assistance program, or they might have a need for um, you know an organization to help them with housing or other other things. So, and some of those are are technology. Um, so, one of the things that we're building out with our technology more now is some of our digital therapeutic um, offerings. So, we know that therapy, um, or at least a therapeutic uh, engagement or intervention is really important to somebody's recovery, but people experience therapy in different ways. It doesn't have to be one-on-one -on -one with a therapist. It can be right. group. It can be with a peer. It can be through some interventions with a person and some through 
um, a technology that has videos and other content that is therapeutic in nature. And so we continue to build out and partner around some of that therapeutic content and that sort of digital um, therapeutic component. Interesting, uh, very interesting indeed. So um, if we look at if, if we look at the the, the future of uh, Eleanor Health, um, you know what 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 is what is you know what does the kind of like you know not not speaking of the distant future, but like you know let's talk about the next twelve to uh, eighteen months, right? How does that look for you? What 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 what's what's on your what's on your mind? What's on your agenda? Yeah, I mean, I think well, I think big picture. I think you got from me um, in the early parts. Like we we're changing both how care is paid for and delivered um, for people who are affected by substance use disorder. So changing both the reimbursement mechanism and the standard of care um, are sort of our big our big pieces that we're trying to tackle. And you do that through you know one market and one partnership and one you know patient at a time. And so we, we're actively scaling, uh, obviously, our clinical model through partnerships with payers who are committed to supporting this population. So over the next 12 to 18 months, we're opening up um, probably three new markets. Um, we're launching a number of new partnerships with payers. So we, you know, we take risk on populations um, and we're able to serve different populations in different markets. And we're building out some of these, these technology components. So um, expect us in new markets, expect us to be, you know, deepening our ties in the communities that we're currently serving. We're currently in seven states. Um, we should be in eight to nine um, through 2023. Uh, and we should have partnerships with more and more payers who, you know, recognize that the way the system is structured is not beneficial to anyone. And they want to be part of really delivering care in the right way for these populations. Yeah, that was uh, that was absolutely insightful. Uh, hey, Corbin, thanks thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks for giving us an uh, you know insight and 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 then building your venture. And you know, thanks again for taking the time. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, Jonathan. Appreciate it.